So I wanted to continue my talk from last week. Last week I, I wanted to spend some time talking about some common misconceptions about Buddhism. Um, and I spoke about, uh, you know, there's only one kind of Buddhism, or is the Dalai Lama like the Pope for Buddhism, and things like that. And, I, and, and this evening I wanted to talk about five more misconceptions. Um, that, that have to do with sort of Buddhist beliefs and practices. Um, specifically, you know, monasticism, so we're all Buddhists, monks. Um, you know, diet or vegetarianism, uh, meditation, karma, reincarnation. So I'm going to chat about those a bit. Um, and I'll try to touch on these fairly quickly. Uh, I do have a tendency to ramble, so I'll do my best. Uh, but I could t each of these could easily be their own Dharma talk. Um, and maybe we'll we'll dive more deeply into some of these, especially if you'd want to hear about these. Just uh, you know, let us know, reach out to us, comment. Um, we'd love to hear from you. So, the first one that I want to discuss tonight um, is that you need to be a monk to really practice Buddhism. Um, and and this is a popular image, right, of the Buddhist monk. Um, you know, and and there are lots of images out there uh, where where you know, you have Buddhists in robes. I mean, I'm wearing a robe. Um, I'm not a monk. Uh, but, you know, Buddhists in robes are a very common thing. You know, robed figures, shaved heads, sitting on, on meditation cushions. Uh, but you don't need to be cloistered in a monastery to practice Buddhism. Uh, but some do, right? There is a very strong and, and long-standing history of monasticism in Buddhism. Um, so some monks do decide to, or some Buddhists do decide to live in monasteries um, or convents because there are Buddhist monks and nuns. Um, but you also don't have to be a monk forever if you choose that path, um, if only for a time. You know, so in, in some countries, uh, some Buddhists enter a monastery for a period of time, maybe even just a year, and then they leave. Um, so it doesn't have to be a permanent thing. Um, but, you know, there, sometimes people think like, boy, but isn't it easier or, or kind of better to practice when we can step away? And, and sometimes it can be nice to, you know, get out of the normal habit and routine of life. Uh, and that's why a lot of Buddhist communities, including ours, have retreats. Uh, you know, it could be day-long retreat, weekend-long, could be week-long. Um, but it's an opportunity to focus. Uh, you know more sharply and for a longer time than maybe you normally can on some of your uh, some of the practices or some of the elements of your practice um, but then we come back right because the goal for a lot of us you know priests and lay people included is is to apply our practices to daily life to apply the teachings to our daily life um, and speaking you know of of lay people uh, you know, we talk about lay people, we talk about priests, we talk about monks. Not all Buddhists are, are monks or priests. Um, not all priests are monks, right? Um, we have priests in our order, the Order of the Dragonfly, um, but we don't currently have any monks who live that sort of monastic lifestyle. Um, and a Sangha, a Buddhist community, normally consists of both lay and ordained members, right? Um, and in many schools, you know, to, to kind of talk about the, the priesthood, uh, in many schools, priests can get married, have families. Um, they can be uh, uh, male or female. 
Um, and it's funny because this point was actually really important to my parents <laughs> when I told them that I was entering seminary, uh, you know, four years ago. Is that like, hey, like, does that mean you can't get married? You know, in case I, I would ever want to get remarried. And I told them, no, no, that's that's not what this means. Um, I could I could get married if I want to. Um, you know, so so while a lot of great teachers over the years and over the centuries were monks and a lot of sutras and a lot of great teachings and philo philosophical thinking have come from those monks who dedicated to their dedicated their lives to teaching um, and reflection you don't need to be a monk uh, to practice Buddhism uh, you also don't have to shave your head though a lot of us do that as well that's just because we like it it's simpler um, so the next misconception Buddhists don't eat meat Right. This is a there's a, a common, uh, uh, you know, view that uh, a Buddhist needs to be a vegetarian. They don't eat meat. Um, and I've even noticed over the years, you know, there there are, are menu items called Buddha bowls, right, that are invariably vegetarian uh, in their in their makeup. And and certainly, uh, you know, Buddhists can be vegetarian, right? Um, Buddhism is very inclusive <laughs> in that regard. And honestly, I've probably encountered more vegetarians in our community than in any other group that I belong to. Remember the first time I, I came to a liturgy, Oban, uh, many years ago. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of vegetarian food that people have brought kind of for, for a potluck we were having following. And, and you know, and, and so I think it makes sense that a lot of people... Uh, you know, think of Buddhists being vegetarian because Buddhism has a strong link with uh, nonviolence and avoiding killing, right? So obviously they extend that to animals. Um, and some schools do require a vegetarian diet, uh, and a lot of other schools encourage it, you know, for those very reasons. Um, but it's not a requirement, it's not a commandment, um, you know, in the way that you see certain rules in, in other traditions. Um, and there's actually an interesting bit of uh, two two interesting bits of history related to Buddhism and um, you know the early uh, Buddhist communities were uh, the the monks were beggars right so they would take their bowls and they would go into the lay community um, they would they would go into town and they would they would beg silently for food and, and the the lay practitioners would come out and they would give food they they put food in the bowl and the Buddha the the, the monks had to eat what they were given and the rule was that look if you get meat in that bowl as an offering to you and this is you know what you receive then you need to eat it the only exception being you know unless that animal was slaughtered just you know for the specific purpose of feeding the monks um and the other bit of history you know in in some stories um it's sort of related to the same thing that if you were offered this you need to eat it uh, the, the Buddha's last meal, um, the one that, that in, in the story of the Buddha made him sick uh, and, and ultimately led to his death, uh, is, is often thought to have been a, a meal of wild boar or pork. Um, some stories say it's mushrooms, but others say that it was meat. Um, so, can Buddhists eat meat? Yes, Buddhists can eat meat. Uh, but you can also make the choice to not eat meat as a part of your practice. The, the next 
misconception that I wanted to talk about is related to meditation. And all Buddhists meditate. And this is a very uh, popular image um, of the Buddhist. I mean, if you Google Buddhist, you're going to see pictures of people meditating in robes, most likely, right? Uh, most statues of the Buddha are of the Buddha seated in meditation, right? So this is a very common understanding of Buddhists. Like, oh, like you're a Buddhist, you meditate a lot, right? Um, and some schools do obviously emphasize meditation. You know, the, the Zen school comes to mind with the practice of Zazen, which means, you know, simply sitting or just sitting. Right, and so that's a big part of, of how they practice and how they reflect. Um, you know, and, and meditation is mentioned in the sutras, the sutras being Buddhist scriptures, um, but it's often directed at monks, not necessarily lay people or lay practitioners. Uh, and we certainly uh, incorporate meditation into our practice. Right? We'll spend some time in, in quiet reflection and meditation following this talk uh, this evening. Um, but meditation is just one of the things that we do. Obviously, our, our practice in, involves, you know, reflecting or delivering Dharma talks, as, as you know, we do in these weekly, uh, in these weekly sessions. Uh, we offer incense. We chant. Uh, we celebrate liturgies, whether it's the liturgy of the day or a weekly you know, uh, liturgy like this or the annual liturgies that we celebrate to mark different uh, moments in the Buddha's life. We read and we study. We serve the community. So there's a lot of different ways that Buddhists practice, and meditation is just one of those. Um, and I call that out because I, I think a lot of people are drawn to Buddhism and they explore Buddhism because of its links to mindfulness. And, and you know, I've been very uh, grateful of the fact that Buddhism has kind of come into the forefront for that. Um, you know, and some of the studies that have been done on mindfulness and neuroplasticity and things like that, I think that's a really important thing because I think that this practice has a lot to offer, uh, you know, the, the, the modern world. Um, but people oftentimes then think, well, to be a Buddhist, I have to spend hours in meditation and I have to do it every day. And that meditation is the only way to, to cultivate mindfulness or that meditation can only be done while you're sitting which is also not true uh, you can stand you can walk you can meditate on the subway or on the plane um, at your desk you know at work during a break um, so meditation can draw people to Buddhism uh, but I, I sometimes worry that it might drive them away or dissuade them from practicing because they equate their ability to you know focus in meditation um, with their ability to practice at all. You know, they're like, well, if I can't sit a certain way, you know, in, in full lotus with my feet resting on my thighs, and, you know, I can't do that for hours, then I can't practice, right? And then they give it up and they walk away. Um, and that's, that's obviously not true. Um, so, you know, to practice, obviously, you know, I would encourage you to engage with our community or any Buddhist community near to you um, but practice is what we do not only on the cushion um, but during all the time that we're not meditating so meditation is just one part of our practice but you don't need to meditate um, to be a Buddhist and not all Buddhists meditate the next 
uh, concept that I want to address is around karma. Um, you know, and specifically karma meaning that like bad things happen to people who deserve it. Uh, and, and karma is actually the one concept that makes me want to, you know, you see the, the, the person with their glasses, the nerd, kind of push up their glasses and say, well, actually, and karma's the one whenever I hear it makes me want to be like, well, actually, um, because karma has a very solid seat in popular culture, right? The, and people sort of look at karma as divine justice. And, and I feel it's popular amongst people, you know, who maybe don't believe in, in God in a traditional sense, but they still believe in a sense of good being rewarded and evil being punished. And so they're like, well, there's karma, right? That's that thing that sort of incur that ensures that dues are paid, right? And oftentimes when we think about karma, we're, we're thinking about things like uh, good karma, right? Or, or bad karma. The, the belief being that if I do something good, then that goodness will be paid back to me somehow. Uh, maybe I'll get a promotion or I'll find money in a suitcase, right? Or I'll meet someone new or I'll stay healthy because I did something good. I've generated good karma that's now being, you know, paid back to me. And vice versa, if I do something bad, then I have this curse hanging over me, sort of like a sword of Damocles, right? And to that end, the way that I, the, the most common way that I hear karma expressed is that karma is going to catch up with someone. A lot of times we talk about bad karma, not with ourselves, but with someone else because, ooh, they deserve it. They did something bad, they're going to get theirs. And I think this is because we like to think of justice in the same way that we think of other natural laws, like physics. You know, with gravity, what goes up must come down. And then we have these social and cultural laws around justice, you know, judicial system with judges and courts and prisons and juries and things like that. And so we have a sense that justice is a natural law that we can observe very objectively. Um, but what karma actually, actually means <laughs> is action, right? Karma is not reward or punishment. It's not fate. It's not destiny. Karma is action, right? It is the energy generated by the things that we do. Um, so certainly actions that we take, but also things we say and things that we think. So karma essentially means that thoughts, words, and deeds lead to results. They have outcomes. They have consequences. And those results will often make sense in the context of what we did. Right, very directly, sometimes indirectly. But if I act in a kind way towards someone, they may be more willing to show kindness back to me. Right, that's the reaction or the response, the result of a kind action it can often be that. No, maybe not. You know, maybe they see it as um, I'm pandering or I'm acting in a condescending way and they get really upset, right? That's still the result of my action. Um, and I can't necessarily help how someone's going to react to that. Uh, if I say something hurtful to someone, you know, they may pull back from me. They may end the relationship. That's a result of my action. If I think to myself, remember, karma also pertains to thoughts. 
if I think to myself, well, I'm no good, I'm going to fail, right? Then we may start to believe that, and then we're going to act accordingly, right? So thoughts, words, and actions are all very closely tied together. Now, might that mean that positive actions, you know, positive, good, well-intended actions generally have positive outcomes? Sure. But it's not a natural law like gravity where I need to, you know, build up good karma so that good stuff gets paid back to me. It doesn't really work like that. And, of course, vice versa. Um, and that's actually, you know, one of the, the most dangerous ways that I see karma expressed or karma expressed is that people think, oh, when something happens bad to someone or to a group of people that were like, well, that's their fate. That's divine justice being meted out. Um, and we may start to believe that people did something to deserve something that happened to them. So a hurricane, you know, hits a community, does a lot of damage, causes a loss of life. And we think, well, what did they do wrong? Someone gets cancer. You know, did they bring that on themselves? And, you know, look, there's, there's a lot that we can influence in our lives, but sometimes things just happen. And there's not necessarily a moral you know, meaning to it. Murderers can be caught punished. They can also get away with it. Innocent people can get robbed. Robbers can win the lottery. Right? Those truths aren't meant to bum us out or to say, well, everything is chaos. You know, what's the point? But it should instill, instead compel our practice. Because our goal should be to seek connection and oneness when we encounter things like that and reduce suffering regardless of what happens and remain mindful of the fact that our thoughts and words and deeds have consequences right we can't just act any way we want and expect nothing to come of that so the last uh, misconception that I wanted to talk about is the most complicated so I'll try to not spend a ton of time on this because like, it's very it's very easy to talk about this uh, sort of stuff. Um, reincarnation. Buddhists believe in reincarnation is a common misconception. You know, and, and I, I've certainly had a lot of, of people say to me, like, you know, uh, will you come back as a as a dog or were you this person in a, in a previous life and things like that. And, you know, it's... I think it, it makes sense to kind of define some terms first and, and draw a line between um, the concept of reincarnation and the concept of rebirth. Um, because oftentimes we use them interchangeably, but they do mean different things. And again, it's very easy to spend a lot of time on this because you know, it can be very philosophical, like a lot of metaphysical topics. Because uh, essentially when we're talking about things like re rebirth and reincarnation, a lot of times we're thinking, well what happened before we were born and what happens after we die and boy we could spend a lot of time and people have over thousands of years spent a lot of time and energy on those on those very questions right but here's the thing that you know the buddha actually didn't spend a ton of time talking about these things either because he knew it was a lot of conjecture but let's talk about reincarnation versus rebirth just very briefly um so generally buddhists believe in rebirth and not reincarnation. So like I said, we may kind of use those words interchangeably, but they do mean different things. 
Um, reincarnation, essentially, and if you break the word apart, you know, to incarnate, to come into a body, um, you know, reincarnation is a belief that a soul is born into a new body. The implication being that that soul existed in another body before and was someone previously and will be someone again. And we see this more often in Hindu tradition, so this belief shows up more often there. Um, and in popular culture, certainly, we, we are familiar with reincarnation. Um, you know, when, when you have folks who claim they know who they were in a previous life, or past life regression therapy, where they're like, I have these memories of people and places and things from a past life, or folks who are able to speak languages that they've never studied. Um, I tend to have an attitude of not knowing when it comes to those things. Um, because I, you know, I, I can't claim that people don't have that information. Um, you know, but I also don't want to claim to know why people will, will sometimes know those things. Um, so I, I tend to have a, a, an attitude of not knowing there. Um, so rebirth, as opposed to reincarnation, rebirth is more common in Buddhism. And it's focused more on the rebirth of consciousness, which is different from a soul, right? A soul is this thing that is uniquely and eternally you. Um, whereas consciousness is just one of the skandhas. You've heard me talk about the skandhas before. Um, the, that conglomeration of stuff that's us. Um, and Buddhism, you know, teaches that we don't have this intrinsic and permanent self that is always there. It's just passed along um, to, to the next life. Um, there are schools that, uh, and, and teachings within Buddhism that deal a lot with what happens, you know, when we die and, and you know, what becomes of consciousness as it's reborn and things like that. In fact, in the Yogacara school, um, you know, there's this notion of the Alaya Vijnana, uh, which is a storeroom consciousness. And one of the, the, the ways that I've heard the storeroom consciousness referred to is, you know, the, the sea floor, essentially where all your impressions of your experiences sort of settle in. And that leads to rebirth. You know, that leads that the notions of suffering and, and clinging and craving and things like that. And that leads to rebirth. That, that consciousness is reborn it leads to future actions and things like that and you can go really deep into this this stuff um, and I'm not going to in this in this talk I want to stay kind of surface level and to do that I, I want to chat very briefly about what I think is a very useful way to think about rebirth so I tend to think of rebirth as something that happens while we're still alive every moment can be a rebirth right and this is important you know not that i expect every moment to be like a mountaintop experience like oh i feel you know born again and born anew but it's important to recognize that availability of rebirth because a lot of times we get stuck into thought patterns we feel locked in by life we feel locked into choices because we're like well you know i have this karma right tying it all together and we feel we can't change and we say, I guess this is just the way I am. I guess this is just the way my life is going to be. But a big part of our practice is creative action, right? I don't mean creative and like, ooh, you know, like a, the way a comic book artist is creative. 
you know, but to create. You are creating new actions and thought patterns and, and habit energies and things like that. So creative action is a process by which we are challenging the thoughts and the beliefs that manifest in unskillful actions that create problems for us, right? That cause suffering. We challenge those and we say, well, but maybe not. Maybe that's not true. What if that's not true? Do other people feel that way? Probably, yeah. Right? And if you're familiar with our four questions practice, it's a big part of that. Challenging those thoughts and then creating a new thought. You experiment with new actions that reduce suffering. And that changes your perspective. And that shift in perspective is a rebirth. So that maybe you used to be one way. and You used to think that life had to be one way. But now it can be a different way. And that's a rebirth in a manner of speaking. And I, I get, you know, again, going back to uh, the notion of rebirth being, you know, there, there being an implication that like, well, what if, you know, what happens before we're born? What happens after we die? It's very easy to dwell on that. Again, people have been doing that for a long time. You know, whether we go to a heaven or a hell or a new incarnation on earth or, or we, you know, are born into a different realm or a different form right we could spend a lot of time on that stuff but it doesn't really do anything for us on a daily basis apart from just being conjecture i feel it's much more useful for our beliefs to have a context within our current experience um, because that can be a part of our practice so i hope that those brief reflections on some common misperceptions or misconceptions about buddhism uh, were helpful uh, and that they may encourage your continued practice uh, and maybe expand your your notion of your current practice